WMNF Tampa. Support for WMNF comes from listeners like you and the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network. Hurricanes, lightning, flooding, and tornadoes affect the entire state of Florida. The team of meteorologists from the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network keeps you informed around the clock. All year long, they are committed to providing in-depth weather coverage, both over the radio and on the mobile app, Florida Storms. The Florida Public Radio Emergency Network is supported by Citizens Insurance. Online at citizensfla.com. Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11 we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today we are talking with Adam Basque, who is running Tide, a kelp farming operation. Running Tide is a global ocean health company that partners with nature to remove carbon. Your hosts today are myself, Kenny Coogan, and Annie Ellis. Hello, Kenny. And Kenny's back. I'm back from vacation. Irene is waiting for your calls, and Mr. Bill Grace is working the boards. So like Annie alluded to, I am back from Japan. So cool. And uh, it was a wonderful trip. How are you doing, Annie? I'm good. <laughs> My earphone's acting weird, so I'm a little uh, the clamped here. <laughs> but I'm sure I'll figure it out. So I, I went to Japan for the International Carnivorous Plant Society's conference. And when I was there, I visited Japan's oldest tree, which is between two and 7,000 years old. A couple of winters ago, one of the limbs fell off and they dated just the limb to, I think, 1,000 or 1,200 years old. Just the limb. Yeah. That's amazing. It's very impressive. And then we went snorkeling and uh, we saw... Lots of wildlife and wild orchids, wild carnivorous plants is very oh, cool. You saw a lot of wild carnivorous plants. Yeah. So do they look different than, I mean, you know, I mean, was it a whole different uh, visual for you? Or tell me about that because that's your thing is carnivorous plants. Yeah, there's, um, we saw four different species of sundews and then a species of bladderwort. And they're similar. They to the ones that we have in Florida, they're uh-huh. rosette. Some of them have long petioles with little rounded leaves. So we they saw, were very similar, but just not quite the same. Yeah, different species. That's so and, cool. And uh, where we saw them was probably on like a 20-foot by 50-foot slab of rock. Oh. And the rock is always trickling with spring water. Was it warm with spring water? Because you were telling me about the warm. No, was it cold? the spring water is very cold. And I hiked to this location. It took seven hours up the mountain and seven hours down the mountain. Mm-hmm. And because we slept overnight, we had our uh, reusable water bottle and we drank straight from the spring. You slept overnight on the mountain? Yes. It, was there a cabin? It was a hut. Oh, wow. It was no electricity, no toilet. It was rugged. <laughs> wow. And then in the hut... They just uh, taped down like sleeping spots. Mm -hmm. So I had to sleep next to some uh, Japanese strangers. (laughs) And I guess that was okay. Yeah, it was okay. In the hut. Did anybody snore? 
literally everybody. Everyone. Did. <laughs> I, I'm gonna say I did not snore because I don't snore. But when we talked to the tour guide, he said, he said "Well, that's the mountain hut for you <laughs> because it's 1,200 meters up in the air. Oh, that's fun. So you know the cold, <laughs> and you had to sleep in these mummy bags because it was so cold. And then uh, November through March, they get four feet of snow up there on the top of the mountain. Yeah. And um, the boards are made out of cedar. And of course, we're on this island, Yakushima, which is known for like 1,000 to 7,000 year old uh, cedars. And I said, you know, why are people using cedar as the as the walkway, as the boardwalk? Right. And he's like, well, you know, it's uh, pest resistant. Uh, it doesn't get moldy. It doesn't deteriorate. And then I asked like, oh, what are all these holes are they, you know, bug damage? In the cedar? Yeah, in the cedar of the walkway. And he said, no, that is the people's winter boots with, oh the, my God, with, the, with spikes. the spikes. Because they're in ice. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. And uh, when I left the WNF show last time, four weeks ago, I said I was going to go to Yakushima and go snorkeling, which is like the capital location for loggerhead and leatherback sea turtles. And I did snorkel with a sea turtle. You did see a sea turtle? Yes. And they look different? <laughs> yes. Uh-oh. Annie is zooming. And I'm and having I'm feedback. feedback. Oh, well. I think I'm going to close this off. Yeah. Technology. So when I was in uh, Japan, you know what I ate a lot? Sushi? Oh, no, you don't eat fish. Well, I did have a lot of rice balls covered in seaweed, and I did have a lot of seaweed and kelp. Oh, very good. You're so smooth. So since we're talking about kelp. (laughs) I love it. Kenny, you're awesome. (laughs) Uh, So... uh, Yes, today, uh, my name is Annie Ellis, and uh, I'm having a lot of technical difficulties. So if I'm a little flustered, it's because of that. So uh, we're talking with Adam uh, Basque uh, is with Running Tide, and it's a kelp farming operation and also a global ocean health company that partners with nature to remove carbon. And back in March, this is why these shows take so long sometimes, uh, to get the person that we really want. Uh, in March, I was watching um, To where to Which We Belong, which I got to say is a great uh, movie. You guys should see it. It's a lot about uh, saving the world and how we can do different things. And I was amazed at how growing kelp uh, was doing so much. Now, uh, being besides being delicious, using nutrients for everything and the part about sequestering of the masses of carbon surprised me. It really did. And so... I did a deep dive, uh, and then I found Running Tide. So, Adam, thank you for being here. I want to read a little bit about you uh, because he is, uh, has so much wonderful background. Uh, he's a collaborator and innovative senior leader with more than 20 years of government NOAA uh, experience, nonprofit, PEW Charitable Trust, Education, Sea Education Association, and industry experience in the ocean sustainability world. He understands fisheries management, shellfish aquaculture, coastal restoration, and seafood supply chains. Also, pa- a passion f- has a passion for uh, healthy oceans and coastal c- 
communities. He has a master's degree in marine conservation and biodiversity from Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. He grew up on the shores of Lake Michigan, which looks like an ocean, <laughs> I gotta say, and currently lives in Portland, Maine. At Running Tide, Adam is building the tools to enhance coastal ocean health with restorative species along with the tools to quantify those impacts. Thank you so much, Adam, for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Well, I, you know, we have a lot of questions, so I guess we'll just get right to it. Uh, and I just want you to tell us about kelp and why is it such an incredible solution? And also because I, I noticed that Marty Odin, the owner, he's from a fourth generation farm, of uh, fishing family. And uh, his, uh, how did he come up with the idea or how did y'all come up with the idea of farming seaweed? Well, yeah, the, there's a lot, lot to unpack there, but the uh, the the answer is yeah, like you said, kelp kelp is just an incredible species, and kelp isn't as, isn't actually a, a species; it's a group of these marine seaweeds called called brown algaes that tend to grow really big and really fast. Um, two two things that make them excellent for for sucking carbon out out of the water. You know, that's that's how they build the the structures within their um, they're not plants, but we often confuse them with plants, but that's how they build the structures of their fronds. Um, and in the process, they also suck a lot of nutrients out of the water, which is great because there's oftentimes too many nutrients in coastal waters. And, and I know in, in Florida, that's a challenge and, and can cause harmful algal blooms and red tides and those yes. kinds of things. So kelp in general, just because it grows so fast, that that group of brown algaes grows so fast, it has a ton of potential um, both as a, a species for for cleaning up coastal areas, but also uh, for addressing one of the biggest challenges we face in our time for for combating climate change. And mm -hmm. the challenge is, well, how do you get that carbon that's locked away in the kelp to an environment where that carbon is actually locked away? Because if, if you grow it in a coastal environment and, and you harvest it, well, if you eat it or you turn it into other products, that carbon is still in what we call that short-term carbon cycle. I want to stop you right there because that is something that was really in one of my questions and it just seems like the perfect timing because you just said, you know, like I always think of kelp as uh, farm seaweed as an ingredient in supplements, delicious food, cosmetics, animal feed and fertilizer. And now I'm hearing you say that that would be toxic because it's in the border. I mean, it's on the shoreline. Is that correct? No, no, it's not toxic at all. I mean, kelp is an incredible food and an incredible species for for picking up nutrients. You know, the nutrients aren't aren't toxic. It, they're they're really kind of what it, it's fertilizer. We put fertilizer on our crops. It's the same types of uh, nutrients that encourage the the kelp of that the the growth of the kelp. So, so it's not at all toxic. But what what it does when when you eat it or turn it into other other products. It doesn't remove it remove it from the carbon cycle. It's still kind of what we call in the in this short term carbon cycle, and eventually makes its way back into the atmosphere and continues to kind of contribute to the the problem we we all have around the world, which is too much carbon in the atmosphere. So, yeah. how, what what we're looking to is okay. How do we how do we use that that carbon that's embodied in the kelp and actually put it back into that longer term carbon cycle deep in the earth or deep down into the bottom of the ocean. Right. And so that's so, that's so. where we focus our technology on is how, how do we really maximize kelp 
for its carbon removal potential. So I just want to be really clear, just because I do eat it a lot. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, by having me ingesting this product and animals ingesting it and all these different things that are ingesting this product, it's still okay to do. Then it's it's oh, uh, it's a wonderful thing to do. Okay. It's a okay. wonderful thing to do. Okay. Please, please eat more of it. <laughs> yeah, I do. I love it. So, okay. I just want to be really clear about that because when I, you know, if I'm unclear, I'm figuring in there's other people that are as well. So that's why. I asked that question, but yeah, I know your, your thing, you guys don't do that part. You don't do anything with, uh, uh, the food or, or, uh, for animals or people or anything like that. You just, yours is strictly carbon, uh, sequestering, correct? That's right. At least, at least, um, for a major part of our business, it is around the sequestration of, of the carbon embodied in kelp. Now, now we also apply it in coastal applications more for restorative applications. Oh, so you know, kelp, it, clean, it basically cleans the water because it, it can soak up those nutrients from coastal waterways. Um, it also provides a lot of habitat. If you've seen pictures or um, gone snorkeling in a kelp forest, there's tons of fish and ton, tons of wildlife that, that calls the kelp forest home. So we call that a, a um, you know, kind of a, a keystone habitat, a biodiversity hotspot. Uh, essential fish habitat. So you can do all kinds of wonderful things with, with kelp that bring benefit to a, to a coastal area. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really focus on how, how can we get creative um, and rebuild kelp forests. You know, kelp forests all around the world, I think in, in the last several decades, they've been declining about 50%. Uh, a lot of this is driven by temperature change. It's driven by pollution. Some, sometimes there's wild harvesting that, that hasn't been done in a sustainable way. So we are also in the business of restoring those kelp forests as well as with other animals that can have a really positive impact on the environment. So oysters, clams, scallops, some of these bivalves that actually filter the water and make it cleaner and take out some of the, those algae blooms. So, so when you when have, you ha- oh, I'm doing, uh, it, doing again. it again. I'm going to close, it, close it, off. it off. Sorry. All right. So Adam, let's uh, take a break and just reintroduce you to see if we have uh, listeners' questions. You're listening to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios WNF in Tampa. Today's guest is Adam Basque, who is running, who is with Running Tide, a kelp farming operation. If you want to be part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org and we will read it on air. So, Adam, can you tell us what's the difference between seaweed and kelp? Well, kelp is a type of seaweed, so it's it's not it's not a you know the the it's a category called the brown algaes are are the kelps, and so there's many different species of kelp on on the Pacific coast of the U.S. Many people recognize uh, pictures of those really tall kelp forests that that float up all the way to the surface and look like these under underwater forests. That's one species of kelp called, called um, bull kelp and giant kelp, or that's actually two species that make up those kelp forests. On the northeast coast, where, where I live in Portland, Maine, the majority of the kelp actually grows on the bottom and, and has these uh, kind of these, these flowing long blades of kelp that can be up to 10, 15 feet long that, that kind of make this mattress over, over the seafloor and this really, really special habitat for, for species. So that's species like sugar kelp, um, horsetail kelp. Uh, you know, there's many, many species of kelp found all around the world. And in fact, kelps cover something between 25 and 30 percent of all all coastlines all around the world. 
you're in the business of carbon sequestration, and that's a method of reducing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere with the goal of reducing global climate change. So can you tell us how kelp or seaweed is good for carbon sequestration? Is it just the process of photosynthesizing or that, growing? That's, that's part of it, right. And the, and the, the challenge is, it's, it's yes, I mean, it, it grows as it's growing. Uh, it's it's locking in some of that that carbon in the surface ocean, the, the carbon dioxide in the social, surface ocean through photosynthesis and turning that into carbon in the tissue of, of the kelp. And then we figured out a system for how we can passively grow that kelp in the open ocean and passively sink it. Uh, so when when you're doing a carbon carbon removal project, you, you really need to think about all the carbon that you use in deploying that system. So for us, you know, we, we have boats that we take offshore and they're burning fuel. So so at the when when we calculate the amount of carbon we've removed at the end of the project, you need to also include the amount of fossil fuels that you've burned, for instance, so you get a net carbon removal. So you you grow the kelp on a on a buoy of um, basically waste wood. So if you've ever been to a, a lumber yard, you know, they'll have the scraps of the bark and the um, other smaller pieces, and those usually get burned or they rot and go up into the atmosphere. Well, we thought about, well, how about if we kind of use that carbon and use that to to put the kelp spores on that as a, as a buoy? And then so that those carbon-rich um, carbon buoys drift out, eventually grow the kelp over the course of a few months, and then the whole system becomes waterlogged and sinks. So we have the carbon from the, the terrestrial wood waste, and we also have the carbon from the kelp that has grown over the course of the few months, and then that all sinks to the deep sea. The, the real challenge is, okay, well then how do you quantify that? Because you're out in the middle of the ocean, and it's... Um, uh, but, you know, it's not like we can have a boat that follows e each of these around and, and counts the amount of car carbon molecules. So we actually focus a lot on building the technology to monitor that system. So bu buoys that can drift in the open ocean, take pictures of of uh, the buoys, take pictures of the kelp, calculate how much carbon is embodied, and also get verification of when the whole thing sinks and goes to the deep sea. So how do you get that verification? Through through cameras um, and set satellite equipped buoys that are that are sending us information out in the middle of the ocean. So we have a, a team of engineers that's building this technology um, that that is capable of drifting along with with the um, kelp buoys, uh, the carbon buoys, and then sending us the information back of when when they sink and how much the kelp has grown. Um, but again, it's it's in very early days and it's a very, very i'd say experimental at this stage yeah so we're we're kind of developing that um hand in hand and we're operating out of iceland right now actually yeah i was reading about that so let me ask you this then if it's uh, if you have that and you make this buoy uh and it floats around uh how long does it float around and and how 
and why does it drop to the bottom? Because, I mean, if it's floating to begin with, why does it drop? Because I would think that the kelp is, you know, it's a natural product that just moves with the water, but I don't necessarily think it's heavy enough to drop to the bottom, but I don't know that. That's right. That's right. And that's, that's the part of the um, design of the system from the very beginning. How do we, how do we get this, this kelp to float for, you know, a few months and then sink? And that's where we have these different, different basically recipes of, of buoys. We talked about the, the terrestrial biomass. And so we have different recipes, um, you know, some that float for two months, three months, four months. Oh. And then just like any kind of log in the open ocean, what happens? They eventually get waterlogged and then right. they sink. One of those properties of wood, one of those natural processes that we take advantage of. Um, we say, okay, well, it's we get that natural float time and then... What was the float then becomes the sink. And have you guys everything we're everything we're trying to do is really just accelerate a, a process that, that's natural that's been happening for for millennia. You know that's how we got all of this oil in these deep ocean basins in the first place. It was terrestrial biomass and seaweed and phytoplankton that that eventually drifts to the bottom. And, and over millions of years under immense pressure and more sediment gathering on top of it. Um, turn, turns into oil, so it's 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 really just kind of accelerating that that natural process. Hmm. Okay, <laughs> I have some thoughts on that, but I'll go to Kenny. Well, I want to learn a little bit more about the passively growing part of yeah, the kelp you. because uh, Annie and I we like to garden, and yeah. you have to give them water and nutrients, but and a surface to grow on, and a surface to grow on. So I understand that you have the kelp on a piece of wood that would have been discarded anyways. And uh, the ocean is just good enough with its nutrients and water circulation and aeration for the kelp to grow. So does that mean you're just seeding more than seeding as in like attaching it to wood um, to get more carbon sequestration? Is that how the process works? Yeah, so so we're basically kind of accelerating this natural process by by seeding these um, buoys with the kelp spores, and you know we've got a team of oceanographers that works with us and ocean scientists that help us identify the right places in the ocean that have the right amount of nutrients, that okay. have the right water flows, that have the right water temperatures. Um, you know, you'll notice in, in in Florida, for instance, you don't have kelps; you have different seaweeds, but you don't have kelp. They they like colder water, and so. For each region of the ocean, you'll have a different ideal location for this system to work. And it's not always going to be a kelp. It could be a green algae or a red algae. Um, you know, diff different ocean areas have different, obviously, properties of temperature, salinity, nutrient profiles. And so we like to work with whatever is the natural species in a given location. That's what we, we will kind of design our system around. Um, but initially, um, yeah, lo looking at both brown algaes it's kelp and also and also green algae so in theory what you're saying is that you would uh figure out what the need what the the type of growing green is in say our area and then you would uh create that and then seed that into the wood and then do the whole process over is that how that would work the, the idea is that yeah this this is a solution that could be applied anywhere in the world as long as you meet as long as you can meet certain criteria right now we're certainly in the in the um, to testing stage of that. Yeah. Um, we've certainly mapped out different regions of the world, what species could work. And again, that the, the actual water depth 
where where the um, buoys ultimately sink is really important because you need to have it at least three three thousand feet deep because you want you want it to get under extreme pressure, um, very very deep and get into into that abyssal they call it the abyssal plain in the deep deep ocean where that that kelp is either going to um, uh, get get covered in, in sediment over time or if it is uh, remineralized or or eaten by anything in the deep sea that that water is going to be moving around along kind of the bottom of the ocean at a very slow rate and will not resurface for for at least a thousand years how long does that last that thing that buoy well it, it all depends on the ocean area again it, it, all, oceans operate different in, in every area of the world okay thanks but, but the idea that the what we're working on is is a system for what we call more permanent carbon removal so we talked about you know the, the that slows cycle carbon that that's kind of like all 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 the oil that we've dug up since the industrial revolution and burned and has gone up into the atmosphere that's moving that oil from the the slow carbon cycle up into the fast carbon cycle what we need to do is get we have you know hundreds and hundreds of billions of tons of carbon in the atmosphere now that wasn't there before how can we get that carbon back down into long-term storage and remove it from the atmosphere um, and so that that's we're, we're working on systems that can do that at scale and that really just accelerate the natural processes of kind of how, how that has happened over millennia um, naturally because we, we think you know we, we can't in order to do this at the scale that it needs to be done which is on the order of billions of tons of carbon removal a year you know we can't be relying on having to build new power plants to um, power any kind of technological solution we really need to tap into the vast kind of sources of power and energy that that are abundant and free like mm -hmm. the sun like gravity like ocean currents um, to, that, that has to be a big part of the solution so all, all of our solutions really really zero in on on those ocean-based solutions that that accelerate natural processes and use abundant and free energy in your introduction we mentioned that you had worked for uh, NOAA, the national oceanic and atmospheric administration for more than 20 years and i was curious so you're offering a service where you basically have wood you're seeding kelp and then you sink it who is interested in this because you're not like selling something it's you know, we want to remove the carbon, but I don't know if citizens are willing to pay for that service. So how are you getting funding and who cares about this? Right. And just to clarify, I, I haven't, I didn't work at NOAA for 20 years. I, I've had a 20-year career in ocean conservation. Oh, and some okay. of that time was at NOAA. So I just, uh, just want to clarify that. But the, the customers right now are... It's a voluntary market. So, so companies, you may have heard many companies that have net zero commitments or, or want to reduce their, their carbon impact. Um, and there's some industries right now that also have made commitments to, to eliminating or reducing their carbon footprint. But they also, it's not realistic that they're going to be able to stop all of the emissions themselves, whether that's <clears throat> cement or um, steel, you know, there's a number, there's a number of, of kind of heavy polluting industries that, that are committed to net zero. There's also a number of technology companies that are committed to net zero. So we work with those companies that, that have commitments to reduce their carbon footprint. And 
I think more importantly, recognize that carbon removals is becoming an increasingly important part of the solution. You know, yes, we need to reduce emissions. That's hugely important. We've been needing to do that for 50 years. Um, and, and we continue to need to do that. Um, and now the, the um, international um, panel on climate change through the United Nations is saying, well, hey, we, we've gotten so far down this road now and we haven't acted enough. Carbon removal now needs to be, you know, ad advanced and we need to start removing the carbon permanently rather than just reducing reducing emissions. And so we're, we're kind of fitting squarely in what the, that, that, that bucket of removal solution, carbon removal solutions. And there's a growing number of companies that, that are wanting to to pay for those, even though it's a relatively young field. Um, the the number of companies that have made commitments to to carbon removal is is growing really rapidly. So we recently announced that we're we're um, have a carbon removal contract with Microsoft. Yes, I read um, that. They, they um, that's a really fascinating company and one that has committed to um, accounting for all of their emissions since the company started back in the late 1970s, wow. and they want to re re remove. Um, or offset all of the all of the carbon that they have emitted since then. So they are really, really ambitious. Most companies aren't being that ambitious, um, but but some of them, and I'd say especially in the technology sector, as the kind of the early adopters and early promoters of these remover, removals technologies, um, have been instrumental in in allowing companies like ours to to get get started in providing some some of these solutions. Um, you know, it's, it's likely that, you know, it's not a compliance market yet. Compliance meaning, hey, the government says we need to, you know, do this and, and pay for it. The, I think the writing on the wall is that that, that will be coming. talk with you. Uh, I'm Annie Ellis, and you're listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Adam Basque, who is with Running Tide. It's a kelp farming operation and a global ocean health company that partners with nature to remove carbon. If you want to be a part of the conversation, give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on the air. I had written some things down about about that, and I read that uh, Microsoft wanted or their their projection is zero uh, carbon uh, emission or footprint uh, by 2030, which is pretty remarkable. And I'm re really relieved that you said that they've been keeping a record of it because my first impression of reading that was that they're not going to take charge of their own emissions; that they're just going to buy themselves out by hiring a company to do that for them. So, but I did hear you, you know, say that at least, you know, nothing's been done. So somebody's doing it. So we definitely need to start on, on that. But do you think that, or I don't even know if you can comment on that, but do you think that that is something that companies would then not do if they can just buy their sales out of it? I'm just curious. Yeah, that, that's that's the nervousness. We we get this tension all the time. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, are we are we just a vehicle for a company to, you know, you heard the term greenwash. Hey, exactly. You know, we, we don't have to take care of this ourselves. We can just you know hire this other company and we can continue continue business as usual. Um, what we've seen in a lot of the companies we seek out to work with is that they're coming up. You know, and I'd say this is kind of a, a 
a movement within the, the climate conscious and the companies that, that want to take meaningful action. It's a multi-step process where you where you get a plan that, that encompasses, okay, the, the reductions that you'll make within your own supply chain and your own operation uh, and, and get an ambitious plan in place for reducing your emissions as much as as feasible but but you know there's going to be those there's going to be some amount that you can't reduce i mean you got to you got to drive your car to work you got to keep the lights on renewable energy isn't always an option so there's going to be some amount that that of emissions that are still going to be happening and so the idea is reduce as much as possible and for whatever you can't reduce that's where you look to um, do, doing re- removals uh, to to offset that that which you can't reduce on your don't to get to net zero on your own. Yeah. Can you talk about the scale of the challenge? How much kelp? How much uh, kelp needs to be in the ocean for it to make an impact? I mean, the, the, this is this is where this stuff gets really mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, the, the, the scale of of the challenge that we are up to as as a society, as a global society. Um, when you start talking in gigatons, uh, that's really hard to wrap, wrap for anyone to wrap their head around. That, that's when you're talking about billions of tons of, of carbon that is, you know, and I, I think since the, the Industrial Revolution, you know, we've put something like, you know, a, you know, a couple trillion gigatons up up in the atmosphere. And so we need to we need to be reducing, you know, the U.N. is suggesting six to, to 10 gigatons per year between now and 2050, just to keep us on track to, to hit that 1.5 degree target. Uh, That's a the hard world number. Right now is doing tens of thousands of tons, right? And we're, 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 we're trying to scale up to the billions of tons or the gigatons. Jeez. And so, you know, we, we need all types of solutions. We, we need to be sinking kelp. We need to be doing, um, uh, all, all kinds of nature-based solutions. We need to be looking into technologies that that can scale and that won't be overly energy intensive. You know, we're not. You know, I don't think anyone in this space is thinking they are building the only solution that's that's going to work. <laughs> we 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 need, you know, we need hundreds of them. Yeah. We need hundreds of them, and we want to be one of them. And and we specifically look at at, at solutions that can scale. You know, the the ocean already holds. 37,000 gigatons of carbon sequestered in the deep ocean. Mm. So that that additional 6 to 10 gigatons per year is certainly within the the planetary boundaries and and capabilities of of that system. That's one reason we look to the ocean and the the amount of space, the the amount um that that uh it it can hold and and if we can do it responsibly um make you know do, do it in a way that's um, has a global impact, but that's that's certainly kind of the challenge that we are in, as, as well as every other carbon removal company and, and society writ large. How, how do we come up with these solutions um, that can scale to the size of the challenge? That's a big challenge. I didn't know what a gigaton was, so I wanted to look it up, and it's uh, uh, equivalent to one billion metric tons, two point two trillion pounds, or ten thousand fully loaded U.S. aircraft carriers. That just shocked me. So that's and we, all. And we need to be doing, and we need to be removing 10 of those per oh, year. my gosh. Of carbon. I just wanted, because I didn't know, so I thought others might not know either. So I know Kenny yeah. has a question for you. <laughs> well, uh, does running tide restore marine ecosystems? 
or or is that another yes. part of your yeah. work? So, so what many people don't know, and and you know, a lot a lot of the attention on the company is on um, what we do in the carbon space. But we actually started as an oyster aquaculture um, company, kind of building robotics and automation and technology for. Um, scaling up these, these, you know, wonderful restorative species like oysters and, and getting getting more of them in, in the ocean. And so the, the short answer there is yes. And so what, what we do is we still maintain that, that technology and knowledge around how to scale up the growth of oysters. We know a whole bunch about how uh, the positive role that, that algaes can play in coastal ecosystems. Uh, and I think most importantly, we have a really strong focus on technology for quantifying those benefits. So it's one thing to say, hey, yes, we we put some oysters in the water and and therefore that that ocean habitat is better. What we focus on is the the putting the species in the right place and scaling up solutions to get them in in the ocean. But really what does that mean? What what what's the outcome of doing that? How much water was filtered? How much how many how much nitrogen was removed from that system? Um, how is biodiversity impacted, and how do you track that? So we're we're really kind of at the at this spot where we want to not only restore coastal marine ecosystems, but also quantify the benefits of doing that. Because uh, that that's we need we need to have meaningful data and meaningful metrics for what what improvement actually means. And what's the goal of having those metrics to show government agencies or businesses that it's working? Yeah, I mean, you got to you got to have proof. You know, I, I think I think, again, the the tenancy um, can or, you know, uh, or, or I'd say just just saying you're doing something isn't enough. You need to have data, you need to have data to show that you've had the impact that you intended. And you also need to have data if you're if you're not having the impact that you've you've intended, so you can improve on that system. Uh, so it's it's a more towards you know, but the 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 movement that we're a part of is really kind of using data to to prove that we're making a positive impact in the world. That that's our ambition as a company to improve marine biodiversity, to have a positive impact on the carbon cycle, and and ultimately, if you're able to do that, you'll be able to improve you know, coastal communities. And, and that's really kind of the roots of our company, a fourth generation fishing family. And, um, you know, the ocean and, and the people who depend on the ocean are really, really kind of the, the reason we're in existence. We, we want those communities to continue to thrive. Mm-hmm. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to have data that shows that we're having a positive impact. So in addition to the carbon sequestration, you're restoring marine ecosystems. Can you talk about what are some of the biggest threats that, to ocean health and you know you're talking about uh, fishing families; they're very intertwined with the ocean health. Yeah, the, uh, all the oysters and the clams and scallops and so on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so you know, we already talked about one of the major threats to ocean health, and that's and that's uh, climate change. You know, we we often refer to climate change as like the equivalent to Godzilla, this 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 beast that exists and seems like impossible to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with kind of warming temperatures and more carbon in the atmosphere, that carbon also gets into the ocean and causes acidification. So that you know that we that that makes it harder for animals like oysters and clams to build shells. It makes it harder for a lot of plankton species. They're they're really small plants that are kind of the base of the food chain in the ocean. A lot of them build shells. And it's more difficult in, a, in, a, in an ocean environment that is more acidic. So ocean acidification is a huge one. 
changing temperatures is a huge one. And I'd say the other major one is just the amount of nutrients in, in the coastal environment. So, and you know, all, all the fertilizer that washes off um, and into the ocean environment, uh, sewage overflows, that's what causes kind of those harmful algae blooms. That's what's driving a lot of the losses in, in seagrass and um, causing a lot of this kind of like dark mud to start accumulated in areas where we may have had nice eelgrass flats or seagrass flats. Uh, so, you know, co co coastal pollution and runoff, and it's not unique to, to any specific location. It's a problem around the world. Uh, so we're, we're looking for kind of those, those solutions, you know, you got to, you got to stop it at the source. And it's, it's just like climate change. You know, we, we gotta, we gotta reduce our emissions. We gotta reduce the amount of pollution that's going out into the, into the ocean, but we also need to have solutions. We also need to be com combating it in, in the environment. We gotta be sucking that, those nutrients out with more, with more shellfish, with more seaweed. Um, and, and we gotta, you know, be able to document the amount that's coming out and the improvements that we're seeing in the environment. So, I mean, yeah, oh, the, 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 Ocean health challenges that that um, were you know the biggest ones are probably pretty universal around the world. So the acidification that you were talking about is there something uh, in place or in planning stages to be able to, you know, I guess suck that up like the the kelp is with with the carbon. Is there anything or just neutralize the water? Yeah, something. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Is there something in line for that? To be able to help that without yeah, just there's changing. a few things, and, and you know that the kelp actually does have a positive benefit there. So it's really that the acidification is being driven by all that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, kind of getting pushed down into the ocean, and the ocean absorbing that carbon dioxide. So when the ocean has more carbon dioxide in it, it it it, it becomes more acidic. Okay. Um, and so there, there's a few things. So yes, the, the kelp does that because it's it's using that carbon dioxide in, in photosynthesis. Um, and there's also uh, a process called ocean alkalinity enhancement, which which we're also involved in, which is kind of like putting a, a tums in the ocean. <laughs> so so it's you know di different um, alkaline minerals or e even limestone, calcium carbonate, crushed up shell. It's nobody. That, that as that slowly dissolves in the ocean, it's transforming that carbon dioxide into a more stable form of and not harmful, not harmful form of carbon called bicarbonate. And so that, that that's also one of the the solutions we work on is um, kind of putting putting those tums in the ocean, actually coating some of the buoys that we're putting out in the ocean with those those um, minerals. Do you, uh, why should people not on the coast care about the temperatures of the oceans changing and becoming more acidic? It, does that impact people in the middle well, of the country? I, I, I'd, I'd like to think that, that, yeah, in a huge way, in a huge way, you know, a, a huge amount of the oxygen we breathe comes from the ocean. So anybody who enjoys breathing would should, should be really supportive <laughs> of, uh, of, of keeping the oceans healthy. You know, about, uh, the, the amount of plankton around the world, that that's what's releasing the oxygen that goes into the atmosphere. Um, a, a good chunk of that is coming there. Um, you know, if anybody who likes to eat seafood, um, you know, that's another reason to care about the ocean. Anybody who loves watching those those Blue Planet documentaries and just is just inspired by the beautiful amount of creatures and biodiversity that that call the ocean home, there's reason to care about it. Um, so, so I think kind of depending on who you are and what what you're into, you can definitely find a reason to be passionate about um, about the ocean and, and care about ocean health for sure. 
And how can people keep the oceans healthy? So I know you just mentioned reducing our emissions and pollution, but are there other things that we could do today or this week that would help improve the ocean? I mean, I think so. And, and, and you know, especially if you're on the coast or live near the coast or any watershed, really. I mean, every watershed drains into the ocean. Even if you're in mid middle America, you're near a river, and um, that, that water finds its way to the ocean. So um, th thinking about trying not to put too many nu nutrients into the water, because that, that's what's gonna cause the, the algae blooms and um, you know, make it more difficult for some of the, co the coastal species to, to survive. Um, reducing emissions is, is a huge one, just being cognizant of, of kind of the scale of the challenge that we're up against and kind of having that mentality of every little thing helps. Um, and then even as, as a consumer of, of maybe seafood, you know, look, looking for those species that are more restorative, um, eating more kelp, um, looking, looking at diversifying the, um, the types of things you eat that are more low impact. You know, it re I really like to focus on the, the filter feeders, the, the clams, the oysters, the scallops that actually improve the environment um, and in, encouraging those types of sustainable fisheries and, and fisheries lower on the food chain that are that are less impactful on the environment. But um, yeah, I think, I think regardless of where where you live, you can be making decisions and choices every day that, that can be kind of a, a net positive on on the ocean. Yeah, you know, just that what you said about the uh, the nitrogen that's going into it's when uh, into the water, the uh, that is now you know the algae blooms then happen, then that darkens the sun from getting onto the seagrass, and then that dies, and and then the manatees don't have anything to eat, so they're starving. So I mean, it's like each little bitty thing that we do makes a big difference. We have a call, don't we? Yeah, but first I wanted to mention that I was just in Japan, and what I noticed was that there's no public garbage cans. Oh, wow. And it was because of um, like kind of like a little terrorism attack in 1995, but we're not going to talk about that. Oh. But what I was told was that because there's no public garbage cans, that people— Japan just assumes that you'll be responsible for your own trash oh, how and you hang on to it. Right. But because you're hanging on to it, you're also like, well, I'm not going to grab that extra spoon, that extra straw, because right. I don't want to be carrying on to right. it. And I think that was a really great takeaway. I think that's a great idea, too. I mean, I know that they they separate all their trash, too. And they, uh, you have to do that or you get fined. Yeah, they uh, had like the really, really busy bus stations or yeah. train stations. They had maybe like five different bids where you That's could fantastic. sort your plastics. Yeah, Fantastic. So, the caller? Yes. Uh, so, Adam, we have a caller. It's uh, Charles, and I think he wants to talk about heavy metals. So we're not too sure, Adam, if you can answer it. But hello, Charles. Let's hey, Charles. give it a try. Uh, yes. Uh, I'd like to ask you um, about uh, some of these products, uh, seaweed products like you can buy here and there in the health store. And uh, they're very uh, delicious and supposed to be nutritious and whatever, and I asked uh, one or two of the companies to provide me some type of a, a, a CA, you know, certificate of analysis, something like MSDS sheet, and I was just aghast at the amount of heavy metals wow. in these products, and uh, I wondered, uh, and I called back, and they said, well, uh, they, they are, they're sort of bound up, and you don't absorb them. But you keep they they will 
that seaweed will chelate that kind of stuff out of your body, even though it's loaded with it. So could you give sort of a, at least a, uh, maybe, a, you know, a better take on that? Yeah, let's see if, uh, so thank you, Charles. Let's uh, see if Adam has a comment or if he knows about that. Adam? Geez, I, I, I wish I did. Um, you know, I guess I guess that's part of the beauty of, of growing it and sinking it to the deep ocean is that we don't need to worry too much about the the heavy metals. Um, I, I do know, for instance, in in Maine where we are, where we you know there there's very kind of strict restrictions on areas where you can grow it for human consumption versus areas that that where the water quality isn't to a high enough threshold. Um, and you you shouldn't be turning that into into products for for human consumption. But I, I'm afraid I don't know too much about the at the at the chemistry level and uh, about about kind of the the impact of ingesting it and the different levels of of heavy metals in it. So, sorry about that. That's an interesting point. Uh, on the show earlier, the uh, the doctor was talking about how we have these uh, different microorganisms and parasites inside of us. And so what it actually does is it boosts our immune system uh, to where we worked out better with it. Uh, so I don't know, maybe it's something about that. It's interesting. I might have to look it up. Kenny? So uh, Adam, we only have about six minutes left. Can you give us a takeaway? Are we hopeful of kelp? fixing our problems? Is it a small piece of the puzzle? Is it a large piece for a carpentry question? Be a large, yeah, I mean, it has the potential to be a large piece. And I, I'm, I'm very optimistic uh, across the board on its capabilities. And I feel like the world is waking up to all of the ma- amazing things that, that kelp can do. There's a number of companies that are, that are in kind of the startup phase right now that are looking to use kelp for a diversity of applications. One we haven't talked about yet, and again, not one that we're involved in, but I think one that'll have a really positive impact on, on the world is using kelp to um, for packaging materials and, and oh. to, to get away from plastics. Uh, there's certain, certain chemicals and, and um, components of kelp that you can use that are showing promise as, as replacements for that, which is hugely promising. That's fantastic. Um, in, in terms of carbon and what it can do, um, you know, there, there's a couple ways to think of the carbon benefits of kelp. If we can get more people eating kelp, that means they're not eating something that's more carbon intensive. It's, if it's making up a bigger part of somebody's diet, even if it's just five five percent of your diet, well, that's five percent that's not coming from a more intensive um, food source. Maybe, maybe like if if you replace you know, one, one cheeseburger with a kelp burger, and there's a number of kind of yummy kelp burgers out there. Um, if the whole country were to do that, that'd be something like, you know, millions of cars off the road. So so it's, it's um, a lot of promise across the board, and there's so many innovative companies cropping up all around the world looking at the, the different applications of seaweeds, um, you know, in, in Asia and in Japan, probably 90... 99% of the seaweed that's grown for, for human consumption and other products is, is grown in China, Korea, Japan. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. And if, if we dedicated even a small amount of our, of our marine resource to, to um, growing more seaweed, I think we'd have a really positive impact, not just on water quality, but on the types of products and the benefits of those products from, from 
carbon to, to food to bioplastics. Is there anything in our closing that you, uh, since we are going to be going pretty soon, that you'd like to leave us with, if there was something important that you needed to say that we might have missed? Well, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we, we need to be hopeful, but we also um, need to be active participants in this in this transition to um, a healthier living and a healthier planet. You know, the... the um, the, the challenge is, is massive and everyone needs to see what they can do to, to play a, a positive role in this transition. And, and, you know, I think we all know that the answer isn't status quo. It's going to take it's going to take some amount of effort from from all of us. And whether it's, um, you know, uh, thinking about how the ocean can how we can kind of take advantage of all the restorative capabilities of, of the ocean or we can think about the, the habits that we can change, even if even if they're not major you know and think about how we can have a positive impact um that that's really kind of the, the parting thought is that you know we're, we're all in, we are all in this together and we need to collectively have that solutions solutions mindset of how how we can best um uh keep keep the planet livable and in, in, in a way that that you know keeps society strong and healthy mm-hmm. and how would they get in touch with you if they wanted to uh further this information with your business Oh, we, we have an email address, just um, contact at runningtide.com. Check, check us out. Leave, leave us a note. We have social media, um, Instagram, and we're, we're on LinkedIn, uh, oftentimes attending different, you know, business conferences where we're always looking for, you know, smart people to come and join the team and um, provide that, in, you know, that, that inspiration and energy to, to help us um, take, take our business to the next level. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Adam. Can you just say um, your website one more time? Sure. Our website is uh, www.runningtide.com. Thank you so much, Adam. And Adam's with Running Tide, a kelp farming operation and a global ocean health company that partners with nature to remove carbon. So thank you very much, Adam. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And thank you. You too. Thank you to all the listeners for joining us. Um, You you know, speaking of the heavy metals in kelp or in food, when I was in Japan, I was at the conference and between the presentations, the Japanese conference hosts had four tables of snacks, Japanese snacks. So, you know, some of them were fish flavored, some of them were cheese flavored, some of them were made out of kelp and seaweed and things like that. And we were taught, you know, we all had our Google phones and we were like translating the um, oh, ingredients. To what it was, yeah, yeah, to figure out what it was. Recording and, stopped. And quite a few people were mentioning how they're like, well, you know, in the US, you have a lot of foods that have chemicals or ingredients that are banned in the rest of the world. That's why. So having like this natural fish or this natural kelp or seaweed in the snack is actually a lot healthier than... It's interesting because we have just had our, you know, we talked about when we had the, uh, the people on that eat insects. We yeah. just have had such a narrow view mm-hmm. of what our palate is. I guess we need to close it up, Kenny. Yes, we do. If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org, donating through the tip jar and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned as uh, we're going to continue great programming here at WMNF. If you want to hear more public interest programming, switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, and listen to today's Tom Hartman Show live. 
Make sure to tune in next Monday morning at 11 for the next Sustainable Living show. It will be the WMNF fundraiser, and we need your support. We will have lots of great gifts and different ways that you can help uh, fund us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And this is WMNF Tampa. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.